Welcome to this week's Point Community Church Sunday Sermon. If you'd like to learn more about the Point Community Church, please visit our website at tpcc.org.au. Well, last week I mentioned Roland Bayton's uh, biography of Martin Luther, Here I Stand. Uh, I read the book when I was like around 17 and it had a huge impact on my life. In 1517, Martin Luther made a stand on the Word of God against all the religious might of Europe. The the, the global church back in his day was corrupt to the core. And Luther figured that his stand was either going to get him sent to prison or the executioner's platform. And yet, Here we are 500 years later and Luther's stand continues to inspire many Christians. Uh, The um, stand that Luther did make uh, has has helped to lead to that period of history to be called the Reformation. The Reformation. 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 You see, sitting at the heart of reformation is reformation. Not revolution. Revolution looks forward to something new. Reformation, reforming, is coming back and standing on something already established. And the the global church back in Luther's day had drifted away from the word of God. But the reformation of the early 16th century, drew the church back to reform on the Word of God. Now tonight we have our last sermon in Kings. And in the sermon we're going to meet a reformer. His name is Josiah. Uh, Josiah, he comes out of nowhere. Uh, And there he is deeply reforming God's people who had become deeply depraved. And so as we look at Josiah, we're going to see just how depraved God's people had become. We're also going to be reminded that God's patience is it's intertwined with his holiness and his justice. And we're also going to finish by remembering that our only hope is not of this world. And so there are three headings. True reform must run deep. God is patient, but no pushover. Our only hope is not of this world. That's where we're headed. And so firstly, true reform must run deep. Now, just before we meet Josiah, it's worth noting we've skipped a chapter. Uh, That chapter is 21. And in chapter 21, we meet Manasseh. And Manasseh was the most depraved king of the lot. That's saying something, isn't it? Out of all the kings we've looked at this term, Manasseh's the worst. He fully stepped into pagan worship. Manasseh sacrificed one of his children. He practiced black magic. He reintroduced all the pagan places of worship that his father had torn down. But it wasn't just pagan worship. Manasseh was a cold-blooded murderer. Uh, In uh, chapter 21, verse 16, we read of Manasseh. Moreover, Manasseh shed very much innocent blood till he had filled Jerusalem from one end 
to another. Evil, evil, evil. But then we meet Josiah in chapter 22. Read with me. 22 verse 1. Josiah was eight years old when he began to reign, and he reigned 31 years in Jerusalem. His mother's name was Jedidah, the daughter of Adiah of Boscath, and he did what was right in the eyes of Yahweh and walked in all the way of David his father and did not turn aside to the right or to the left. Talk about narrative whiplash. We go from the most evil king, Manasseh, to, wow, where did Josiah come from? Amazing. Now, in the next following verses, we discover that Josiah's reforms, they started off slowly. He just sort of went about fixing up the temple. But then something happened. Josiah discovered the word of the Lord. As it was read, Josiah tore his clothes, for he immediately realized Judah deserved God's full fury. God's response to Josiah is found in chapter 22, verse 16. So Josiah rips his clothes. He's like, oh my goodness, what's going to happen? He sends some people off to inquire of the Lord. And this is what the Lord said to Josiah. Chapter 22, verse 16. Thus says Yahweh, Behold, I will bring disaster upon this place and upon its inhabitants all the words of the book that the king of Judah has read. Because they have forsaken me and have made my offerings to other gods that they might provoke me to anger with all the work of their hands, therefore my wrath will be kindled against this place and it will not be quenched. But to the king of Judah, who sent you to inquire of Yahweh, thus say to him, thus says Yahweh, the God of Israel, regarding the words that you have heard, because your heart was penitent and you humbled yourself before Yahweh when you heard how I spoke against this place and against its inhabitants, that they should become a desolation and a curse, and you have torn your clothes and wept before me. I also have heard you, declares Yahweh. Therefore, behold, I will gather you to your fathers, and you shall be gathered to your grave in peace. And your eyes shall not see all the disaster that I will bring upon this place. And they brought back the word to the king. Now, do you remember from last week when Hezekiah was told that he was going to die and he got all sooky and he, and he prayed and, and then he heard from the prophet that actually his life would be extended for another 15 years? Do you remember how Hezekiah responded? Oh, cool, 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 cool. I'm going to be okay. My children are going to be neutered, but hey, I will have peace in my day. God's reprieve was an excuse to chill for Hezekiah. Not so with Josiah. Josiah was told by God that he would have peace in his day and Josiah used every moment to deeply reform God's people. And just to hear how wayward, how depraved God's people have come. I'm going to read a long section with this. It's chapter 23, verses 4 to 20. As you follow along, just sense, just keep hearing how much Josiah had to reform. 23, verse 4. 
And the king commanded Hilkiah, the high priest, and the priests of the second order, and the keepers of the threshold, to bring out of the temple of Yahweh all the vessels made for Baal, for Asherah, and for all the host of heaven. He burned them outside Jerusalem in the fields of the Kidron, and carried their ashes to Bethel. And he deposed the priests whom the kings of Judah had ordained to make offerings in the high places at the cities of Judah and around Jerusalem. Those also who burned incense to Baal, to the sun and the moon and the constellations and all the host of the heavens. And he brought out the Asherah from the house of, the, of Yahweh outside Jerusalem to the brook Kidron and burned it at the brook Kidron and beat it to dust and cast the dust of it upon the graves of the common people. And he broke down the houses of the male cult prostitutes who were in the house of Yahweh, where the women wove hangings for the Asherah. And he brought out all the priests out to the cities of Judah and defiled the high places where the priests had made offerings from Geba to Beersheba. And he broke down the high places of the gates and were at the entrance of the gate of, of Joshua, the governor of the city, which were on one's left at the gate of the city. However, the priests of the high places did not come up to the altar of Yahweh in Jerusalem, but they ate unleavened bread among their brothers. And he defiled Topheth, which is in the valley of the son of Hinnom, that no one might burn his son or his daughter as an offering to Moloch. And he removed the horses that the kings of Judah had dedicated to the sun at the entrance of the house of Yahweh by the chamber of Nathan Melech, the chamberlain, which was in the precincts. And he burned the chariots of the sun with fire, and the altars on the roof of the upper chamber of Ahaz, which the kings of Judah had made, and the altars that Manasseh had made in the two courts of the house of Yahweh, he pulled down and broke in pieces and cast the dust of them into the brook Kidron. And the king defiled the high places that were east of Jerusalem to the south of the Mount of Corruption, which Solomon, the king of Israel, had built for Ashtoreth, the abomination of the Sidonians, and for Chemosh, the abomination of Moab, and for Milcom, the abomination of the Ammonites. And he broke in pieces the pillars and cut down the ashram and filled their places with the bones of men. Moreover, the altar at Bethel, the high place erected by Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, who made Israel to sin. That altar with the high place he pulled down and burned, reducing it to dust. He also burned the Asherah. And as Josiah turned, he saw the tombs there on the mount. And he sent and took the bones out of the tombs and burned them on the altar and defiled it, according to the word of Yahweh that the man of God proclaimed who had predicted these things. Then he said, what is that monument that I see? And the men of the city told him, It is the tomb of the man of God who came from Judah and predicted these things that you have done against the altar at Bethel. And he said, Let him be. Let no man move his bones. So they let his bones alone with the bones of the prophet who came out of Samaria. And Josiah removed all the shrines also of the high places that were in the cities of Samaria, which kings of Israel had made, provoking Yahweh to anger. He did to them according to all that he had done at Bethel. And he sacrificed all the priests of the high places who were there on the altars and burned human bones on them. Then he returned to Jerusalem. Wow. Josiah's reforms paint the clearest picture of just how depraved the southern kingdom had become. Throughout the entire land, which, which Yahweh graciously provided for the southern kingdom, 
Judah erected pagan temples, pagan poles, pagan prostitutes. Such depravity was established over generations. It was deep. It was pervasive. Josiah's reforms ran deep because Judah's idolatry ran deep. Brother, sister, I trust you want to make a difference for Jesus. You see, it's not just Josiah. It's not just Luther. God calls all of his children to constantly reform around his word. We must constantly reform our lives to the word of God. We must be like Josiah, 22 verse 11, when the king Josiah heard the words of the book of the law, he tore his clothes. After his resurrection, Jesus called together his disciples and spoke these reformation words. And so Jesus is resurrected, beat the grave, calls his disciples together and says, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded. True disciples love to reform, reform, reform around all that our King has commanded. Christians are people of the book because this book, it's, it's not ordinary, is it? It's living and active. This is the very breath of God. This is God's word. And through his word... God changes us. That is, through his word, God reforms us. Left to our own devices, we'll drift away from God's word. We'll treat God's word lightly. But the true Christian hungers and thirsts for God's word. It treats God's word as more precious than gold. Hungry, devouring God's word because it is sweeter than honey. How is it that once faithful, strong and growing denominations end up progressive, weak and declining? Simple. Simple. But the first generation, I didn't make this up, it's just history, isn't it? And someone smarter than me had told me this. The first generation, they preach and teach God's word and his gospel of grace all the time. The second generation assumes the gospel of the grace of God. Yeah, 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 we know that. Just tell us what to do. Yeah, 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 we know about Jesus. Would you stop talking about Jesus? We've heard enough about Jesus. Can you, can you just tell us how to get on with things? And that second generation just assumes the gospel rather than keeps preaching, teaching it, so that the third generation, you guessed it, has never heard the gospel of the grace of God. Every generation must reform on the gospel of the grace of God. 
not lip service, not paying lip service to it, not, not one opinion of many, but reforming our entire lives around the Word of God. That's our first point. True reform must run deep. Secondly, God is patient, but no pushover. Now, when Josiah heard God's law, he tore his clothes. Josiah immediately repented. But do you remember how God responded in 22 verse 16 to Josiah? Thus says Yahweh, Behold, I will bring disaster upon this place and upon its inhabitants all the words of the book that the king of Judah has read. One of the accusations brought against God is his wrath, his anger, his punishment. How can God be good if he punishes people? Why didn't God stop his punishment of Judah when Josiah repented? And remember from a couple of weeks ago, it's an easy accusation to make against God when you pull a certain part of the Bible out from the whole story of the Bible. When we read God's whole story, we see that God is patient. Man, the Bible actually says long-suffering. Kind, loving, patient, gracious. And yes, within all of that character of God, he is also just and holy. Intermingled with God's patience is his justice. Intermingled with God's punishment of sin is his love and to wanting to rescue people as well. You see, God is patient, but he is no pushover. Let's imagine for a sec God was a pushover. Imagine that when Adam and Eve ate the fruit, God said, my bad, shouldn't have made the fruit look so delicious. Or, I know I said that if you eat of the fruit you'll die, but let's try something new. Let's try the naughty corner. Brothers and sisters, if God was a pushover we would have no sense of justice, no sense of right and wrong. It would be utterly evil of God if he turned a blind eye to our sin. And so here's the core of the matter. Our problem actually isn't with God. Our problem is that we don't want to face the facts about our sin. When we accuse God of being impatient, what we're actually doing is downplaying the ugliness of our sin. Do you know the reason why one and two kings is so long is the same reason that the Old Testament is so long. is so that we will have absolutely no doubt that humanity cannot save itself. And so that we will have absolutely no doubt that God is able and ready to save. That's the gospel, isn't it? In the gospel, we see that we are more sinful than we dare admit. And in Christ, wow, we are more loved than we can comprehend. So, what sin 
are you not confessing and repenting of? I'm glad church has worked out. I often ask rhetorical questions. It's good you didn't throw one out, but I hope you might be thinking of a couple. Yes, God is patient, but he's no pushover. And then as I was preparing this sermon, realizing that God was actually judging God's people, I felt like I've got to ask this question of us as well. Again, rhetorical. Church, what do we need to repent of? What does the Point Community Church need to repent of? I wish we had more time. I wish I could start hearing some of these answers and we'd start turning them straight into prayer. What do we need to repent of? In our age of materialism and comfort and cynicism, surely we've got more to confess corporately. Are we known in the community as disciples? Because remember what Jesus said? By this they will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. And then Jesus calls us to even love our enemies. What do we have to repent of? Okay, that, that was God is patient, but no pushover. And now to our final point. Our only hope is not of this world. Now the final chapters, uh, 2 Kings 24 and 25, record the final demise of Judah. And God sent Babylon to capture and destroy the southern kingdom, just like he sent Assyria to capture and destroy the northern kingdom. But there is one subtle difference. The southern kingdom was not completely destroyed. A common practice back in the day was uh, for the conquering king to kill and or take all the leaders and the elite of the conquered nation. And so if he took them away, he'd take them back to his own nation. But then the conquering king would leave all the poor people uh, in, in their town and would set a governor over them. We're told that Jehoiachin, Josiah's grandson, was captured and taken to Babylon. For those remaining in Jerusalem, Zedekiah and then Gedaliah were set as the governors. I will test you on those names at the end. I won't if you're a first-time visitor. Now, as we get to the end of two kings, we find the northern kingdom... We looked at this uh, two weeks ago. The northern kingdom decimated. It is dispersed. It is gone forever. And at the end of two kings, we now find that the southern kingdom is defeated, similarly decimated, but with a governor. But Gedaliah was not a descendant of David. And that should ring alarm bells for us. Because do you remember way back in 2 Samuel chapter 7, God promised David that there would be a forever king that would come from the line of David. And so if this were a movie, 
right now. If, if, if this were a movie, The End of Two Kings, uh, this would be the part of the movie scene where the hero has been shot multiple times. And as the doctors are doing their thing on the table, the hero goes into cardiac arrest. And as they get the paddles all charged up and they put them on his chest and sort of thump him, um, still flatlining. And so... The music gets more dramatic and there he is doing the paddles again and the doctor says, clear. And, well, let's see what happens next. Let's read the final words of 2 Kings. 2 Kings 25 verse 27. And in the 37th year of the exile of Jehoiachin, king of Judah, in the 12th month on the 27th day of the month, Evil Merodach, king of Babylon, in the year that he began to reign, graciously freed Jehoiachin, king of Judah, from prison. And he spoke kindly to him and gave him a seat above the seats of the kings who were with him in Babylon. So Jehoiachin put off his prison garments and every day of his life he dined regularly at the king's table. And for his allowance, a regular allowance was given him by the king according to his daily needs as long as he lived. Now the setting is Babylon, not Jerusalem, but Jehoiachin, a king in the line of David, is found sitting at the king's table. And there, brothers and sisters is God's reminder to keep reading his story beyond one and two kings. Continue to look for God's forever king. Is it possible that God would revive his people? Thank you, Janice. This time you're a bit slower than morning church. And it was only one person at morning church as well. Of course. Of course. Why do I say of course? Because God promised. God promised there would be someone on the throne. God promised. God promised. Of course the paddles were going to come down and start the heart again. Of course, God promised. Now, here's the nagging question, though, from the final three chapters of two kings. Why did God allow a couple of kings after Josiah? Why didn't God wrap things up with Josiah? I mean, Josiah was such a godly king. Josiah, he was godly. I believe God is telling us in 2 Kings 22 verse 2 that Um, Josiah was more godly than David. Josiah didn't move to the right or to the left. Here I stand on the word of God. Josiah, well, he was also dumb. 2 Kings 23 verse 29 tells us that Josiah went out to meet King Necho from Egypt and King Necho killed Josiah. Josiah's demise, it's told in two verses. Josiah's death, it's it's absurd, it's puzzling, it's degrading. 
After all the good and courageous reforms of Josiah, his death is an utter disappointment. What, what is God telling us? I mean, he, he then ends two kings with Jehoiachin, another evil king. What's God telling us? Our only hope is not of this world. We need a king stronger than David. We need a king wiser than Solomon. And we need a king more godly than Josiah. And brothers and sisters, God has sent that king. What's his name? Let's jump to the New Testament. Jesus is stronger. Jesus is wiser. Jesus is more godly. The the last week of Jesus' death takes up more space, more airtime in the four Gospels than his 33 years of of living. Why is that? Because Jesus' death and resurrection is our only hope of salvation. Our only hope is not of this world. We must keep speaking that truth to ourselves and to each other. The true disciple daily and deeply needs to reform around the gospel of Jesus Christ. You see, left to our own devices, we go looking for meaning and salvation and love and belonging in all the wrong places. We either rely on ourselves for meaning and security and and love and significance or, or we search for, well, an influencer a motivator, a group of friends to fill me, a lover, an addiction. We search for hope in this world. Now, if we're robust and resilient, we look in the mirror and go, I can take care of myself. I'll be okay. I'll get through this. If we're a little less resilient, we we look for someone or something else in the world. But here's the thing. Whether we're robust and popular and have everything together, we're just the same as the addict. The self-reliant suppress their need of salvation through affirmation of achievements and affirmation from friends. The addict suppresses their need of salvation with sex, drugs, alcohol, binge scrolling, binge shopping, you name it, it's all out there. We're all made. We're all made for so much more than this world can offer. And we all need Jesus, God's better King. Well, here we are at the end of our King's series. And that endless, predictable, downward spiral of depravity has been sobering, hasn't it? I pray that God will use this term to deepen our excitement and our urgency for continual reform. Excitement because God's better king has come. And furthermore, God's better king will return. How do we know he will? Real question. God promised. God promised. He's coming back. 
Wow. We live, breathe, and die for the return of the king. We long to sit at his table. But are you excited for the return of our king? He will come. Yes. And we are urgent for daily reform. Because every day we do things we don't want to do and we don't do things that we do want to do. We are urgent for daily reform because we're desperate to make a difference for Jesus. And as Janice has already prayed, we are urgent for daily reform because the shiny things of this world every day distract us from the glory the glory of God's grace. Oh, the glory of God's grace. Once we were dead in our sins, but, but, God being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he has loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, we have been saved. And, and so we're urgent to share that grace with everybody. And we're urgent because our King says, go, go make disciples. I'm going to pray. Oh, Father God, Thank you that you have given us many tastes of your glory. And we long for that day when we will get to see your blazing glory. Until then, would we daily reform and repent around your word? Father, be gracious. Father, show us the things that we need to repent of. Father, grant us that repentance uh, that we might step more and more to be like your son, Jesus. And Father, we want to be desperate to show to the world how great your gospel of glory is. We pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for listening. Tune in next week for our latest sermon, or better yet, join us live at 9.30 or 5 p.m. Sunday. You can find all the details on our website at tpcc.com dot org dot au